yeah, we can record it and then um, they can choose whatever they like. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Hello, welcome to um, The Northern Voice. This is Shabina Aslam, and today we're going to be talking about politics and theatre. I've got with me Alan Lydiard, who's the Artistic Director of Performance Ensemble, who work with older adults to make contemporary theatre. I've also got Shirley May, who's the Artistic Director of Young Identity in Manchester. She's also a um, very experienced and accomplished poet. I've also got with me Leo Wan, who is an actor and arts campaigner. He sits on the Race Equality Committee of Equity and serves on the boards of Northern Broadsides and Inc. Arts. So, hello everybody. It would be lovely to hear a bit more about your work. So let me start with um, Leo. Uh, hi, yeah. So, um, I'm an actor, mainly working in theatre. Um, and I suppose over the past... 12 to 18 months kind of over the period of the pandemic um as there wasn't much theater going on um i turned a lot of my attention to campaigning on behalf of the arts um and also trying to make sure that the, the steps that we made forward uh, in terms of diversity in the arts um weren't lost because it seemed that that's what was at most risk in terms of the people who are most um, most at risk of leaving the industry were those who were the most who are most um in the most dangerous position already. So those who came from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, those people uh, who weren't white, um, those people who didn't have inherited wealth upon which to depend to try and make it in, in our industry. Um, so I was doing a lot of work and trying to make sure uh, the government and the public were aware of those risks. And my name's Shirley May. I am the founder of um, Young Identity um, Wordsmith Awards, which is um, a charity it's been around for we've been around for about 10 years um and we work in the community we we are in the intersection between um professional and participatory work so we we try to get work for our poets that are professional and paid um and we have been a charity for about two years did i say that we've been around for 10 years but we've been a charity for two years um and it's growing it's a growing work it's a hard work and um i would say that we are somewhere with a political small p or stroke a huge big one as well hello um so i'm the artistic director of the performance ensemble i the company was founded in um uh, 2014 uh with the uh, production of a show called anniversary which we uh, performed at the Leeds Playhouse. Um, and since then, we've been working solidly, uh, both with um, professional artists and what is classified as participatory artists. So we are very similar uh, in that respect that we work, uh, I call it the space between professional and uh, community artists, but we try not to have any labels. So our ensemble, which currently is of 35 performers, um, is made up of people, some of whom have spent all their life in the professional arts, and some of whom have spent 
uh, all their lives on doing other things, other very exciting things, from probation officers to teachers to a rocket scientist to philosophers to a whole range of different jobs. And um, they now work with us together. We are um, an, uh, an ensemble and we're all artists. And when we create together, we make art. So um, that's the kind of driving force of our work. That's beautiful, Alan. Thank you. I did see anniversary, actually. I was there. Okay, good. Well, <laughs> you know what the work is then. It's, um, it's very much not... Uh, we don't do plays, we don't do musicals, we don't do... We do theatre pieces created by the people that are in it. Yeah, that was lovely. So what, did, what is politics? Small P or big P for you, Alan? Uh, it, well... It's big. You know, uh, the voice of older people is disappearing. They're not heard. Uh, when you reach to my uh, age, I'm 72 now, um, that you, um, you're forgotten, you're uh, in a wilderness, and it's really important to know the, and hear the voice of older people. They've got a lot to contribute. They're not a, a burden on society. They are contributors to society. And it's, um, it's a human right for everybody to have culture uh, to have access to culture, and older people sometimes don't have that. So I am political in that respect. So you, your activism is through getting groups of people together from various backgrounds and then showing their work, making something together and showing it. Yes, yeah. is that right? But also telling their story. So everything that you see, everything you saw in anniversary was true to those people. Everything that we make is true to the people that are presenting it. So they're not actors, they're performers. They're performing themselves in front of an audience. Why is it important to, um, to tackle the distinction between community and professional? Why does that matter? Uh, well, uh, for many, many years, uh, community arts have been described as a sort of second-class uh, uh, activity. You know, it's not as important as professional arts. And um, things are changing. Things are changing dramatically. You know, that now uh, there's a new strategy by the Arts Council called Let's Create, that everybody is able to be um, participate in the arts and everybody has a right to participate in the arts. And we need to be able to say to um, people in power that um, everybody is an artist and everybody is creative and everybody has a story to tell and they need to be told and they need to be seen and uh, most of the time they're not or they're regarded as as i say second class art um and um that's not true anymore so um shirley alan said that your work was similar to his would you agree with him or not I would say it is because um, when I started this work, it was about um, young voices um, in many ways, the polar position in terms of um, young people not being heard. Um, I'd worked um, for library service for library services in Manchester for about 10 years. And I worked with these young people who were so articulate in the space that I was working in. Um, and I just I just wanted people to hear what they had to say you know even from the ones that were like as young as five that were really quite determined and very bright and but you know were determined what books they wanted to read and and tell back their stories and stuff like that and um i ended up doing a project for um apples and snakes um which is a large writing 
um, literary organisation, probably the biggest in um, in the in terms of support by arts council in the country. Um, they 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 gave me some work as a writer um, to work with some young writers, and that's how Young Identity started because I did a writing workshop which was for ten weeks, went away, um, performed at Warwickshire University, and they came and they were empowered. I've never seen a group of young people empowered and 10 years on we've worked with hundreds of young people based on that one project and we work with 13 to 25 year olds and it is about them talking politically about what it's like to be young living in Manchester living in the city and living uh, and they you know they work internationally so they've made international friends where they're talking about similar things climate change climate change is a big thing for them you know they think that we've ruined the world you know, um, and so the climate change, um, talking about um, the way that we farm, all sorts of stuff comes through. Yeah, it's amazing. How do you get them to be so honest with you? I don't know. I think they see me as just this big auntie Shirley who <laughs> just, you know, I'm that auntie that actually takes time to listen. Um, you know, I talk a lot and people think I talk a lot, but I actually listen more, you know, and um I get nervous when I'm with a crowd of people. So I talk a lot like this, but actually I actually sit back and listen and I listen to what they're saying and what their answers are and what their upsets are. And then I go, can we write about it? Or what can we do about it? What are you going to do about it? You know, um, because often young people are expected to wait for an adult to change things for them. But some of that change has to come from the fact that I think that, you know, once you've got a cognitive skills of understanding and, and stuff like that, you make your change, you know, you make, you make the changes as well. And what I try to do is facilitate that, be in between, because um, that's where my mentoring comes in. So I'm in between that. So I'll open the door and go, come on then, <laughs> uh, just push them through, you know. So say, say what you've got to say rather than me say it. You know, we, again, I'll just say quickly, I've had people come up to me and say, after they, they've read or some of them have performed, did they write that? I think it's the most insulting thing ever. You know, like I'm going to sit down and write 25 poems for young people, definitely <laughs> not. So I missed a piece that you did, you, that Young Identity did. I think it was at Manchester International Festival last time. Yes, we did. I heard great reviews of it. Can you tell me about that, please? What did I miss, Shirley? Oh, you missed a wonderful production of um oh it was the hardest thing to get anybody to write anything at first so we picked these wonderful poets and then they looked at me and i was like well it's your play so get writing so we wrote um they wrote something that was called alphabus and um it was um, a dance piece that was we were working with an artist called um Rod, reggie rock gray from new york and he does an art form that's called flexing um which is really quite a visceral bone crunching um dance routine oh it's oh, almost scary to watch but beautiful at the same time um and they wrote a, a piece around if all two books as young people they of, of the tribe they were given the books with beautiful words in that made the world a utopia but even in a utopia you start to question when things are missing and things don't quite feel right in your spirit and it was about that position of give me all the words so that I'm empowered completely, not part of the words, because how can I make an informed decision if I'm only given a small section of something? 
And so that's what the play was about. So it was a meeting of poetry and dance and a alternative world. That leads me on to Leo, I think. So um, how can um, your activism uh, support people like Shirley wanting to get that work onto another level? Well, I think something that happened over the past year, which was really interesting in terms of the the arts industry, the culture industry suddenly found itself under a great deal of threat because of the pandemic and not having any source of income and tried to prove itself. And firstly, surprisingly, given that, you know, our our modus operandi is, is, is telling stories, we're terrible at telling the story of arts and culture in the UK. Uh, we didn't we, we didn't lobby very effectively. Um, and we also struggled to find allies and advocates to to support us um, and I think that's because historically or at least over recent years we've not been that great in having an arts and culture industry in this country which is truly representative of the country that we're in that does work um, throughout communities especially what we think of as kind of like typical theatre we don't as, as Alan was saying like we often see participatory or community arts as secondary and yet when we were trying to say how important the arts are, how important the arts were going to be for getting us out of the pandemic, all of the things that people talked about were participatory arts. It was, you know, if we're going to bring these communities back together, if we're going to bring people back together and like feel more comfortable with one another and socialising one another, arts can be a way to do that. But that's, but that's participatory arts. So we've, we've had this weird disjoint in, in kind of like how to lobby effectively for ourselves. And also, um, we're not we're not get, you know we're not going to have the general public say the arts are valuable unless we're including the general public in the arts as as much as possible like how do how do we get to the place where like france or like germany where the arts are actually valued without us having to fight for it every single time without us having to worry that there's going to be funding cuts to arts council every year how do we get to that point where it's similar to the national health service or national education service where there's no question over the fact that we need this investment because it has value to the general public and to society because of the way that the arts had developed you know we're talking about a context where over the past 10 years funding of the arts was cut by about 40 percent so we're already in a pretty tricky situation and that has meant that smaller companies really struggled over those past 10 years um locally based organizations really struggled as well because a lot of those cuts came through local government um, because local government was being cut and then local government, the first thing they would cut was their arts and culture budget, excepting a few really br brilliant local councils. So the context was that a lot of the money did kind of like get focused on the bigger organisations. Um, and those bigger organisations weren't always best placed to support their local culture ecology and also to, to support smaller companies. Um, and so that's some. That's, if there was a consensus that I feel like hopefully came out over the past uh, 12 months, it was that everyone was, saying it, everyone was saying there is an ecology, there is an ecosystem which is interdependent from the national theatre down to the individual freelance artist making work which is participatory, working in local community and village halls. All of that depends upon one another. The, the trick now is now that we're starting to come out of the pandemic and things are starting to reopen, can everyone remember that and can everyone hold on to that or are kind of like big commercial 
West End producer is going to go, yeah, yeah, that was useful to use that that line to try and get some money from government, but now we, we actually don't think that. You know, we need, it's weird. I feel like in, in the arts, people have been in silos for a long time, not talking to one another. Something that I really discovered over the past 12 months is how little I'd spoken to the people that I work with. You know, I talked to the actors and directors, but maybe not as much with um, sound designers, with set designers, with, and all of that stuff. Like, why don't we talk to one another more? Because once you do, you start to recognise that we we all know what the problems are in our industry, and if we work together, we could we could solve them. For me, um, one of the things that I've seen is that so many of those big buildings were in deficit, and they were in deficit, they were losing money, hand over fist, people, theatre was beginning to feel like people were only interested in going to music venues and stuff like that. And so these um, grants have literally taken some of them out of bankruptcy. And um, although I, I, I absolutely agree that, you know, not enough money has gone down to, um, to the freelancer, um, I, I do believe that some theatres are going to come out stronger because that debt that they had, they were carrying to some extent, the government has written it off which is slightly unfair when you're a, um, an actor or you're a community organisation who relies on that theatre putting something on, giving you a part of their grant so that you can survive, because that's how we work. Um, I was lucky enough to get um, a small cultural recovery grant and it has supported us over six months. But we've come to the end of that six months and we're still not in a theatre and no one, you know, unless we are unless we are lobbying for work, which we have been doing from um, outside, um, commercial organisations, we're still, we're still struggling. A friend of mine um, has been doing some work with um, um, an organisation in London that is a, talking to um, freelancers who want to apply to the Arts Council. And the overriding question, and the overriding thing that she said she'd picked up from doing this piece of work is how poor artists actually are. And, and how they have absolutely struggled to pay their rent, to pay gas, to pay their electricity, to, to just keep food on the table. They have relied on food banks, and that should not be the case. And that's why the, the, the European model, the German model, is so much better, because an artist is valued and is paid to create and to, and to engage with, um, with um, community. I don't know much about the German and French model, Shirley. I know a little bit only because I've done some work in Berlin. But as an artist in Berlin, you um, you can be paid. I think it's like a stipend or if you're creating, I think £1,500 a month or euros a month to be creating work and work that you're going to be put out. So actually, you're not worried about whether or not you've got um, a bar job or a shop job or anything like that, because you're you've, you're given this a piece of money to be able to create and to pay your rent and to pay yourself. And if that's right, if that's correct, Leo. And I, yeah, and I think in, in in France they have a um, a scheme called I'm not going to pronounce this well because I can't speak French, but I think intermittent <laughs> uh, du spectacle or something like that. Intermittent du spectacle is what I would say if I was, if I was reading it off the page, um, and that's if if you work as an artist, if you work so many months, then say like 10 months a year or something, then for those two months of the year where you're, you're not making money, you kind of, the government will pay you money. It's almost kind of like a, a, like a, almost like a live pension. It's recognizing the nature of artwork is, is itinerant and there are gaps in it, but 
not being able to afford to live in those gaps isn't brilliant for making art. But with both those things, I mean, I'm just thinking Shirley was saying like adopting a European model. I don't think it's as easy as just, we can't just adopt it. It's a long term process of actually valuing arts and culture in this, in this country, which we often use like to sell, you know, UK PLC, but don't seem to value actually within our shores. What about older adults? Are they able to live off their pension and work with you, Alan? Yeah, I mean, um, we have a philosophy of paying everybody, um, but we uh, recognise that uh, people have got pensions and have got uh, bus passes and have got certain um, re- um, certain um, benefits, um, and so we um, are able not to pay people less. Um, which is not great, but it's a way in which we can survive. So um, we, we certainly, I mean, you know, when I started the company, I, was, I had a pension. That was my only income. I had a state pension. So I set up the company when I was on a state pension. I now earn a little bit of money because we get our grants um, uh, to do that. So it's topped up. But um, I think it's, you know, I think older people now have opportunities to start again and create a new career for themselves. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, so you retire at 65 and maybe the, you think that's the end of your uh, working life, but it doesn't have to be. And we recognize that there are jobs that we can offer people as they reach retirement age that is going to um, allow them to um, work into their 80s and into their 90s. And that makes them feel younger. It makes them more alive. It gives them more self-esteem. It makes them feel better about the world if they're doing something really creative um, and not just sitting at home watching the TV and not able to um, to uh, contribute their skills and ideas uh, to society. That's wonderful. Thank you. I think that what I'm hearing is that there, we, find, we have to find ways, and we do find ways to resist um, models of resistance, finding ways to support uh, people who don't have access to resources to get into the, to work in the arts. But race and class, of course, do affect um, how much you you how many resources you have access to, don't they, at the end of the day. And I think what's been interesting over this last year um, has been um, the dialogue around race, equality, uh, the rise in um, racism against Southeast Asians because of um, COVID, yes, and of course um, the rise in protest against racism because of li- Black Lives Matter. And I was just wondered if um, Leo and Shirley could talk a bit about that. Yeah, it's it feels like it's just a battle that we keep on coming back to that you that you think you might have won, but then but then you have this thing again again. It, it unfortunately seems like it's a process that is that is ongoing, and we seem to be in this difficult period at the moment which some people are terming a kind of a culture war where some people have even started to deny the existence of institutional or systemic racism or the effects that it might have on on people who come from a background which isn't uh you know the dominant background um and yeah it's it's 
it's con it's concerning because you know there's that you know if you read certain newspapers they'll they'll talk about the woke brigade for example it's like what do you actually mean when you say the woke what what for, for those people who dislike the woke brigade what what actually is that for you what what does that word mean because you're just you're using a cipher there when you say woke what do you actually mean and really they mean people that they disagree with and people who believe in social justice so yeah there is this um difficult dividing line i think it's also strange that you know the arts we kind of like think of as being very very liberal and lovely but has been one of the worst industries in terms of how systemically racist it is in terms of who are actually in positions of power in theater organizations um and in in terms of I and mean, also in terms of sexism you know lots of stuff has been coming out not only over the past year but a few years ago when me too first happened but also over the past year they come like the sexist bullying behavior and it it does come it i guess it comes back to the class eventually because it's about people being in precarious positions financially um if they're working in this industry and therefore not feeling like they can speak up or that they have the power or protections to speak up um against oppressions and 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 people acting with prejudices but there does seem to have been the conversation in our industry seems to have developed over the past year and again it's that thing that i was saying earlier it seems to have developed over the past year whilst we've been in pandemic and everyone's worried about their livelihoods including the artistic directors on over 100 grand a year but let's see if we can hold on to that moving forward i feel that what happened after um you know george floyd was killed was quite amazing that a lot of theaters came out and everybody wanted to fly the flag of black lives matter but for me it felt quite disingenuous and um i'm just going to say that i was very uncomfortable i was uncomfortable because for a long time all of us lots of us have been beating down the door saying you know there needs to be management in theaters that are reflective of communities and where they're placed um in cities and towns um, it needs to be reflective of um, people who are, come with um, um, a different language, a different background, and that has not been the case. So most senior management in, in the city that I live in, Man Manchester, and middle management don't look like me. And I'm just going to say they're white and they're British, and they often come from the middle classes. And um, for me, why I say disingenuous, all of a sudden, I was getting phone calls right, left and centre um, as an organisation that is black led, female black led, um, saying, can I have this poet or this writer or this writer? And, um, and I'm like, well, I run a very diverse writing group that is, is not only black, but is LGBTQ. It is, has a lot of females and feminists in the group. But I was being asked specifically. Um, for me, the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement is highlighting issues around um, issues around racism and prejudice that we're still struggling with after, you know, we've had Martin Luther King and we've had Malcolm X and we've had all of those freedom fighters. Why are we still fighting for equity when, you know, we, what we should be fighting for is the fact that the human condition needs to be better for everyone i, I was just going to briefly i just want to briefly say you know, yesterday we celebrated not celebrated marked an anniversary since george floyd's death and 
a year since a lot of theatres came out and made public statements about how they had not lived up to expectations in terms of racial justice and racial equity in the past and we're going to do better. It's been a year and I'd like to see what those theatres have done. I would like to see the actual evidence for what they've done because otherwise all they got a year ago was they made a statement and they got right. reputational benefit from making right. that statement at no risk to them and where's it gone now because otherwise otherwise that's just theft if you've just got reputational benefit from using his name and you haven't done any work that's theft so i want to i want to see the change that's happened over the past year and i it's it's uh it's not been forthcoming so i know um that your work always attempts to be very inclusive alan is there anything you want to add to this no i mean i agree completely with shirley and leo it's um it's you know the time has been go this has been going on for such a long time and is not um it's not being dealt with it's not being dealt with it's pushed under the table it's um it's ignored um you know black history month as you say is the time that you only hear black voices and i think that's incredibly uh, patronizing and awful mm. um i mean our company is you know 25% black Caribbean, 10% uh, Chinese, um, disabled uh, um, participants, uh, performers. We, we set out very much to try to be as inclusive as possible. Um, we work with um, lots of different people from lots of different places, and it's always very, very important that we do. Um, so um, I agree with uh, Leo and I agree with Shirley that um, more has to be done. More, more, more has to be done. Now, now, please. There has been some change. We've seen some um, new theatre directors coming in. My own son-in-law has just taken over. Um, Abdul Shayek has just taken over Tara Arts in, um, in London. And, um, with, you know, we are seeing some black um, artistic directors being appointed. I remember Garfield Allen from the Green Room. Um, he was he made history for about 10 years or 15 years because he was the only black artistic director in the whole of the country. And um, and that's an indictment and still is an indictment that it's only in the last five years. And my daughter says, I, I quote her a lot because I work with her. She actually um, runs Young Identity um, much more on the um, the, the the nuts and bolts of our organization so if you know if you work with her you're going to get a spreadsheet you're going to get this you're going to get that but she said that she's almost weary that somehow that um there's a lot of white artistic directors leave, leaving at a very 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 poignant you know point in the history of theater where theater is struggling and she she's gone i wonder whether or not the black directors will turn it around and then all of a sudden they won't be good at their job because that's also what happens a lot is that you're you, you know people say, oh we gave her a job but she was not very good at it you know and 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 there's and there's also that you know that the training that's not given to people that you're only you're only um partly trained you know, or you're de-skilled when you come into an organisation rather than skilled up to become these um, people um, and directors. Um, and for me, I, I'm looking because she's normally when she's predicting things, it's probably quite true that you see these these people come in 
And so all of you guys out there that are artistic directors, make sure they don't come back in a few years and get back a job. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I had to throw in some password there. But, um, you know, and I'm not even born in Jamaica, so it's a, it's a false password. But... But when she predicts something, I often see it happen, you know, that all of a sudden that person's not good at what they do, but actually they're damn good. And the productions that they've put on have been excellent and they've actually drawn crowds to their work. You know, um, I'll just say that there was an actor that came from Jamaica and he was called, um, uh, oh, his last name is Oliver. And he, anytime he came to England, the Playhouse in Manchester and the Opera Theatre was absolutely packed, sold out sold out tickets every time um, this actor would come. But it was so infrequent and nobody could see that actually black people go to the theatre. You need to just put some shows on that (laughs) Chinese people go to the theatre, but you just need to put that stuff on. You know, um, um, Asian people go to the theatre, but if the theatre is just this once a year black play that is um, thrown on at the Royal Exchange, I'll just say names me, um, thrown on at um, home or you know here and there you're going to get you're going to get the audience then and then you're not going to get the audience because you're not putting on things that everybody wants to see I hate people making assumptions about my purse mm-hmm. as well I will pay for what I think is good uh, what I want to see and if it's programmed I'll pay for it thank you I just want to ask Leo about um, being an actor mm. Do you, is it, do you get much work? I'm mean, certainly not over the past year. <laughs> Earlier when you were, when you were talking about people uh, being able to survive as artists to an extent. Earlier in our history, while when they're on the doll and I was thinking, oh, that would have been lovely. Uh, not because, not because I want to shirk work, but because, you know, it's, it's in the nature of, of being an artist and especially being an actor. I'm, I'm, just an actor i'm not a, i'm not a writer i'm not a maker i don't direct my own stuff and i think people who do all of that stuff is it that's brilliant but i'm 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 an actor that's that's all i do and i think that should be possible just to be an actor and just earn money from being an actor but it, it's 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 very very difficult i think you know just just before the pandemic hit i was very very lucky to be on a theater acting contract which had been for the entire previous year but that's that's you know that's pretty rare that's unheard of unless you're on the west end or doing something weird like i was what was it what were you doing um that was um with the royal shakespeare company we were we we're touring around we we'd been in stratford for a while and touring around and about to go to the us and east asia and then the pandemic oh. hit so we made it as far as newcastle um <laughs> <laughs> which I loved, but I, I also was quite excited about Tokyo. But <laughs> but yeah, it is it's it, it is incredibly difficult to be mm. an an artist, and I don't think it. And I don't. I think it should be a little bit difficult, but I don't think it should be this difficult. I don't think it should be like when I I look at, around at kind of like my contemporaries from when I was younger. And the ones who have stayed in the industry and the ones who have been successful were the ones who had parents who lived in London so they could live with their parents for a few years whilst they're starting up being trying to be an actor. For, for other people, it's like, OK, move to London, try to become an actor. Oh, can't afford to do so because I'm 
just focusing on paying rent. Um, but thankfully, there's also been a move away, I would say, over the past few years of people thinking they need to be in London to be an actor. I was just going to say about um, the, um, the idea of ensembles. Uh, when I was at um, Northern Stage in Newcastle, we ran an ensemble company for nine years. So we employed actors for nine years uh, on a full salary. Uh, 52 weeks of the year with holiday pay, with holidays, and it was an extraordinary process. And I'm trying to recreate that again uh, with older artists. So lots of older artists, lots of older actors, um, you know, don't get work. But if I can start developing this idea of ensemble, where people work together over years rather than weeks, I think you create a different type of theatre. And I think you also give opportunities for actors to be able to afford housing and all the rest of the things that they currently find really difficult to do. What are the full-time jobs in theatres? What are the full-time jobs in theatres? None of them are. None of them are artists. None of them are actors. They're, uh, they're the marketing team or the <laughs> finance department. Or uh, obviously, we need those people. Obviously, they they deserve a job, but not at the expense of. The, the centre of our work, which is the creation of art. Absolutely. Mm, and I do right. think this, this comes back to investment in the arts, because the reason why theatre organisations actually have grown whilst all of the funding has been cut is because they've needed to generate more income themselves. So, they, so you know, the national ended up having huge numbers of staff because they needed a bigger marketing department to bring more money in. They needed a greater catering department so they could make more money from catering. So... The reason why it's grown is because there has been a cut of investment to to um to these organizations um and that's why there aren't that many artists involved in the actual running of of, of buildings so it does come back to the idea of we need to we need to create greater government investment in 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 the arts i think um training people to give something back that's what i love about the project that I've got, which is Young Identity, is that no one, when I say to people, have you left? And I've got a lawyer who, I've not left. Why you said I've left? You know, and they'll come back and they'll, they'll I, I get donations from young artists who are now working, even if they're not working as artists. And it's, it's, it's teaching people to feed back into the system and it not just be um, some rich patron who's, you know, made these millions um, renting properties or whatever, and they sit on boards and they go, you know, they're ever so benevolent because, you know, they've, they've paid for a, a thing. Um, but they've got theatre tickets free all year um, from the thing that they've paid for. I think that it's teaching people to feed back through. I've just looked online um, while we were on. And it says Germany has rolled out a, st a strategy for £50 billion to support arts in the future after COVID. Wow. And that, and that requires investment from government, but also the people in receipt of those funds, they then have a responsibility to make sure that if they're running buildings, for example, that those buildings are welcoming everyone in the society and communities in which they're based. I don't think they very often do. I don't think most people walk past a theatre their local theatre in, in in some of the cities and go, oh, yeah, I can just pop in. I'll, I'll pop, pop in. in there. I'll hang in there. <laughs> it's supposed to be a civic space. It's supposed to be a community social yeah. space. And instead, people see closed doors and perceive uh, 
unwritten rules about how they're supposed to be in those spaces and that's that's not mm. that's not what art and culture and theater is is supposed to be about so yes the investment has to come in but the people who receive that money need to start doing some serious thinking about which communities they're serving and how they go about that absolutely well what happened to the northern powerhouse shirley listen i've got no idea i went to meetings about how they was going to build the infrastructure for greater manchester better transport um, put some of the local lines um, and communication lines back into place that they took out so that manchester would become this northern powerhouse and then we brexited died a death I disagree. I, I, I disagree to, a, to, <laughs> to an extent. Um, <laughs> Go on, Go on uh, Alan. Well, I disagree because I think uh, the Northern Powerhouse is people powered. I think that you're definitely right in terms of the PR um, uh, agencies that set up the Northern Powerhouse have disappeared and gone. But I think the people in the North are incredibly resilient and are powerful and are making waves that are going to create a new North in the next 10 years. Noted that Tracy Branham has become mayor of West Yorkshire, that Leeds City Council have formed a thing called Leeds 2023, which we're deeply involved in, which is a year of culture for Leeds. Bradford is going for a year of uh, city of culture in 2025. Uh, Calderdale is doing a year of culture in 2024. Uh, uh, and actually everybody is working like crazy to build a new north. And that's people-led. It's not politician. It's not, it's not press agency-led. And the last one was a press agency-led marketing tool set up by the Conservative government. Alan's optimism there. I, I, but I, I do think, you know, that there's, there is something in a name. The Northern Powerhouse, is, it's, a, it's about power. So if there, is, there needs to be power in the, in the North, and, and Alan is interpreting that as people power, that I think if, if a government is serious about that, then it needs to place some power in the North. What, why, why is Parliament in London? Why, why, why is the House of Lords in London? Why is the House of Commons in London? Why is the Supreme Court in London, why is London? The, why is the National Theatre in London? Put a National Theatre in York. If you're going to be serious about these things, as opposed to just just doing a PR campaign, then it's the same stuff uh, as we were saying earlier with Black Lives Matter and theatre statements. Words don't mean anything in this situation. I need to see actual action. So there is going to be a Northern Powerhouse. There, there has to be there has to be not only investment of funds but also moving seats of of power. Shirley. I was going to just address it exactly like that. Thank you, Leo. I don't need to um, do any more. I'm just a little bit um, utopian out. But the legacy that's emerged in Glasgow as a result of 1990 City of Culture is immense. And I absolutely do believe that things will move from the south to the north. You know, we've got to make that happen, Leo. Of course, we've got to make it more than just a, um, a, a disingenuous gesture. But we can. And people are changing the world. You know, people are making movements happen. And we have to take responsibility for doing it. And we can't keep blaming other people. We can't blame governments. We can't blame the Arts Council. We can't blame uh, people. We've got to get on with it ourselves and do it ourselves. I was reading um, The New Age of Empire by Kahinde Andrews. And at the end of it, he did say that... Uh, the uh, hope resides in the global majority rising up 
and defeating um, the ways in which we're oppressed. All mm. previous revolutions have been grassroots up. Any change has always been led by the people. Well, let's get leading. <laughs> so thank you so much, everybody. That was was really moving and inspiring. So thank you again. Thank you, everybody, and have a lovely day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Hello, I am Millie Gaston. In this segment, I will be chatting to artists across an array of disciplines, from writers to performers, backstage and anything in between, about their experience of working in theatre. I would love to welcome Mina Anwar, actor and director. Having appeared in internationally renowned television shows such as Doctor Who, Upstart Crow, The A Word, Happy Valley, and theatres such as Everybody's Talking About Jamie, Life of Pi, and numerous Shakespeare's. Mina is also known for her directing, most recently creating a northern adaptation of The Importance of Being Earnest at the Lawrence Batley Theatre. Mina, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's so great to have you on. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking. That was very nice. <laughs> what led you to the theatre and becoming an actor and director? The thing I did first was, ever since I could open my mouth, I've been singing. Um, and that was my first love, um, which not a lot of people don't, even though they do, because, you know, I've been in some musicals and stuff. But I actually, that's the thing that connected me with an audience. And I think in my life, I think I've only ever, I thought I wanted to do, a few things one was sing tell stories and sing and do science that's literally what I wanted to do <laughs> so that's the first thing but it did lead me to wanting to tell stories and I think understanding myself and I think in the to be honest I think saying that to somebody about this kind of unprecedented year we've had is that what theatre means to me because to, to be in front of an audience and to, to tell a story or to have the privilege of creating human beings is uh, has saved me, I think, saved me and given me a voice and, and given me a place to learn to articulate myself in, in many situations uh, and deal with quite heavy things like racism or, you know, understanding other people and understanding other cultures as well, I think. That's what theatre has given me. So that's that's why I think I wanted to to continue going from acting into to understanding about the fact that you could be an, an actor for a job. That was extraordinary to me. I didn't know that. So how would you best describe your work? Now, can you share something you're most proud of and a challenge you've overcome? Yeah, I think the more you, I learn about myself, uh, the better my work becomes. And I think it's been a, a courageous journey in creating with integrity the kind of work I want to do and also being involved in, in, in breaking down doors and especially being a, a northern Asian woman uh, born in this country but like had Indian parents who then became Pakistani after the partition. There's so many narratives. I always talk about owning your own cultural context. And mine it has so many facets to it. You know, I was born in the north, born in Accrington, in a small town, you know, and then went to London, lived in London for like 18 years. I was saying to somebody the other day that I think 
that we should all let our skill set speak for itself, even though sometimes those doors are shut. Because people don't recognise that, that you have many facets to your artistry. And I think loads and loads of artists have that. I think it goes hand in hand the territory to want to be creative in many ways, you know, whether it's during lockdown, just baking like an absolute banshee, or <laughs> having an outlet. You just go, well, how, where can I channel it? Where can I channel it? The thing is, you know, we're always, you're only one snapshot of, of any of yourself at any one point. You know, you don't go there and go, this is me. Let me tell you about me for the like, Because it's like 51 years of life there. But at any one time, I always say that people are so much more than they demonstrate. And as a Lancastrian, what does the phrase Northern Powerhouse mean to you? And how do you feel about creating work in cities labelled Northern Powerhouses? I mean, I do a lot of work South Shields. I do work at Customs House. And they're an extra. See, to me, they're a Northern Powerhouse. And yet, just that little bit too far for people to go if they want to go and watch great theatre. But they have made some extraordinary pieces of theatre up there, which nobody has ever seen, or the community has seen. But really, I mean, I went there to direct and choreograph this musical, uh, The Dolly Mixtures, a couple of years ago. And I must say that Ray Spencer at um, Customs House is a real champion for giving people. He gave me my first professional directing credit and my, my first choreography credit, full choreography credit. I think what's really sad is that people consider certain theatres to be so far away and let's not go and watch. And yet they have the most extraordinary piece of theatre. Maybe having these labels like you know Manchester and Leeds and Sheffield being called Northern Powerhouses does kind of isolate, you know, Hull Truck, Lawrence Batley. Exactly. Are you conscious of the current political climate when you're choosing place to direct? I'm just thinking about Road by Jim Cartwright, which you directed for the Manchester School of Theatre. Um, I think for me, what I wanted last year is to, to, to do a show that meant something to me, but also do a show where people could really tap into what was happening with them right now. And I think Road by Jim Cartwright is talking about this phenomenal and it's uh, set in 87. But I think the reflection of what we were going through last year all I had to do is just say to those students, think about how you feel right now and channel it into the play. And that's basically what they did. I think that's why it was such an extraordinary success. Not only because of using Zoom, it was all Zoom filmed. So the history of that, that play, uh, where I did it last year, was I was meant to do it in the theatre socially distanced. And it, wasn't going, it was going to be filmed in the theatre, not live. What I tried to do is create how we could, you know, look at the place, stage it, tech it, film it, do it, and rehearse it like a play, and then shot it like a film. That's exactly right. It, you were totally transported to every single character's mini world, I suppose, and you, you definitely did that. You know, this year has seen magnificent and powerful shifts, both politically and socially. How has this affected the work you want to be a part of or create or, I don't know, go and watch? You know, we're part of social political debate. The world is opening up and our industry is opening up to be of service and, and also to illuminate. 
and highlight the, the discrepancies in, in where people have been last year. The people who've had work, the people who haven't had work, the people who've had help, the people who've had financial help, the people who haven't, the people who have fallen away and that have been forgotten about. In all walks of life, particularly in our industry, um, and I think going forward, I, I really want to be part of something that that is that opens up a debate about you know not just diversity inclusivity, but also about you know people who've been left, people who don't get represented, whether it be um, silent communities or you know and communities within our own working class uh, areas as well, you know, being being working class, you know, how to having access to the arts, having access to lots of things, being an older woman, being a woman who gets, you know, it, maybe there's, you know, having work that's not there, you know, where is our work, how are we represented, how is, and so there's so many different narratives that we are at any one point, but we're not all of them all at the same time. And I really, really think about it, the fact that that we look at how we can represent ourselves in all our different narratives and go, that is my narrative, and so is that, and so is that. And maybe we don't have to be put into the boxes anymore. And then also, the other narrative I think is, is being kind of, I'm um, exploring the, how it is not present, is second generation uh, children of, of immigrants that came over, second generation, who are born here particularly, who are completely missed out of the narrative. And I think, like I get scripts, when I do get them, about Asian families, where my age group is being represented like my mom's uh, generation. And I keep saying, why does this sound like my mom? Why do I have to keep trying to teach people how to make dal. You know, <laughs> even though it's lovely, and I know how to make dal from my mom, but I'm not my gen mom's generation. We have a different narrative, and I think it's very, very underexplored. And I think I am I'm doing one, hopefully coming up, that's about uh, Yemeni, Arab, uh, and Somali people who moved to South Shields in the 50s. Uh, and I think I'm going to be directing a story about that. Wow. Um, well, so I, I, I cannot wait to watch. Um, yeah, I mean, you might have to go up to socials and can watch it. But it, these things are like brave, and I think some theatres have to be brave enough to go, what stories have we not seen? Who in the community around us? And if somebody comes to them with a story, how do we facilitate that maybe without looking at, you know, how is it going to make some money, is it not, is it part of what we normally do? Because there's nothing at the moment that we normally do. So we might as well do things where we can move into a new way of, of looking at what theatre means to people and stories. Because these people have been around all year helping each other. So can we help them in some way? I'd like to end with a quote of yours. This was taken from an interview about everybody's talking about Jamie. You don't always have to carry the politics and carry the gender or talk about your religion or your culture. 
You can just create a human experience as an actor. That's what I've always tried to do. Put a human life on the stage. Absolutely correct. I think our job is to, and our privilege and joy is to create human life on the stage in its most truthful form, but truthful for each and every actor being an individual who creates a different life or a life and an inner life of a person because we are have you know, diff, different inner lives ourselves. So this mythology, which I always find really is a bit makes people displaced in our industry because we have a mythology of competition all the time because of how the industry works. But I do believe that we can just do that without carrying the politics. And, you know, I don't always have to be the Asian woman in the room. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. It's been so brilliant chatting to you. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. How brilliant.